We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, you can take your seats. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, thank you that there is not a person in this room this morning who is here by accident. Uh, but we are here because you've brought us here. And you alone have the wisdom to speak into our lives. Our lives are so complex, and our stories are so different. And we are all over the place on the spectrum of belief. God, thank you that you see every single person in this room. Thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves. And thank you that you have brought us here because you have words of life and hope to speak to us, and so we ask that you would simply give us ears to hear all that you would have to say to us this morning. Speak to us in such a way that our lives would be changed. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Good morning, Uh, my name is Brent, I'm one of the pastors here if I haven't met you, and it is great to see you this morning, even if it it is only half of your face. Uh, Oh, mask, how I have not missed you, but. Here we, here we go again. Uh, it's raining outside. It's kind of dark and gloomy this morning, so we need a little bit of humor to start off the sermon. Uh, in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, Pastor John Ortberg 
tells this story. He says, years ago, my wife and I traded in our Volkswagen Super Beetle for our first piece of new furniture, a mauve sofa. It was roughly the shade of Pepto-Bismol, but because it represented to us a substantial investment, we thought mauve sounded better. The man at the furniture store warned us not to, uh, to, to not get it when he found out that we had small children. You do not want a mauve sofa, he advised. Get something the color of dirt. Amen. But we had the naive optimism of young parenthood. We know how to handle our children, we said. Give us the mauve sofa. From that moment on, we all knew the number one rule in the house. Do not sit on the mauve sofa. Do not touch the mauve sofa. Do not play on the mauve sofa. Do not eat on, breathe on, look at, or think about the mauve sofa. Remember the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden? On every other chair in the house, you may freely sit. But upon this sofa, the mauve sofa, you may not sit. For in the day you sit thereupon, you shall surely die. <laughs> then came the fall. And one day there appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. So my wife, who had chosen the mauve sofa and adored it, lined up our three children in front of it. Laura, age four, Mallory, two and a half, and Johnny, who is six months. Do you see that, children? She asked. That is a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. The man at the sofa store says that it is not coming out, not forever. Do you know how long forever is, children? That's how long you're going to stand here until one of you tells me who put the stain on the mauve sofa. Mallory was the first to break. With trembling lips and tear-filled eyes, she said, Laura did it. Laura passionately denied it, and then there was silence for the longest time. No one said a word. I knew the children wouldn't, for they had never seen their mother so upset. I knew they wouldn't because they knew if, the, if they did, they would spend eternity in the timeout chair. I knew they wouldn't because I was the one who put the red jelly stain on the mauve sofa, and I knew I was not saying anything. I figured I would find a safe place to confess, such as in a book I was going to write. You know, every single one of us in this room is looking for a safe place to confess. In fact, if we know ourselves at all, that's part of the reason we're here this morning. And you see, the good news of this passage is that we are not alone. Even the people who wrote the Bible were looking for the same thing. Homer Simpson has my favorite quote of the Bible all time. Homer Simpson says, in the Bible... Everyone is a mess, except for this one guy. That is the greatest summary of the Bible there is. Everybody is a mess, except for this one guy. And Psalm 51 is one of the greatest examples of this, because Psalm 51 is written by someone who is a complete mess. Now, we didn't print it for you, but if you went home and you opened your Bible to Psalm 51, you would see this little subtitle at the very top of it that reads this, a Psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. If you aren't familiar with the story, David, this supposed great king of Israel, 
the one who is called by God to uphold righteousness and justice had an affair with a woman named Bathsheba, and then he had her husband killed. And you can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. It is a story of lust and lies, of infidelity and injustice. It's a story of betrayal and deception and objectification and of premeditated murder. Now, why would God include this psalm in the Bible? It's very simple. God includes this psalm because he does not want a superficial relationship with you. The real God wants a real relationship with the real you. He wants you to learn how to bring all of you to all of him. You know, that's what the Psalms are all about. He wants you to bring your worry to him. That was last week. He wants you to bring your anger to him. That's next week. He wants you to bring your loneliness to him. That's in two weeks. But what we see in this passage in Psalm 51 is that God wants you to bring the hardest, darkest, and messiest parts of your lives to him. You know, maybe you have not done the things that David has done. But one thing that every single person in this room, pastor included, shares in common is that we are not the people we want to be. Every single one of us is looking for a safe place to confess. See, what do you do? What do you do when you find yourself crossing lines you never thought you would cross? What do you do when you come face to face with your own moral failure and shortcomings? What do you do when you have really blown it in life? What do you do when your actions and your words and your decisions have hurt you and have hurt other people around you? What if I told you this morning that no matter how broken you are, no matter how much of a mess you've made of your life, there's actually a way to come out on the other side with more joy, more strength, more confidence, and more purpose. Would you want that? Of course you would. So Psalm 51. Let's dive in. I want to look at three headings this morning. We're going to look at the problem of guilt, number one. Number two, the paradox of grace. And number three, the power of forgiveness. So first, the problem of guilt. Now David prays something shocking in this passage. Look at verse 5. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now I want you to notice, David does not say, God, I messed up. I, 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 I did some, some pretty bad things, but this is not who I am. Now, David says, this is exactly who I am, and this is who I have been since I was born. This is how I came into the world. Theologians call this the doctrine of original sin. And you see what David prays in this passage, it is so countercultural because the prevailing worldview in our culture says people may do bad things, but that does not make them bad people. That people are not inherently bad, but they are inherently 
good. Now, Christianity says something very different. And please hear me this morning. It says something very different. It says that on the one hand, every single human being, regardless of what color you are, regardless of how much money you have, regardless of what religious beliefs you hold to, every single person is made in the image of God and therefore has inherent dignity and beauty and value. But on the other hand, at the same time, it says that something has gone terribly wrong with us. And you see, modern society believes the exact opposite. And that is why the whole notion of guilt has become looked down on. You know, guilt today is kind of like iPods. You know, they, they stopped making iPods. I just learned this. I still remember the first iPod that I got. They don't make them anymore. They are obsolete. They are outdated. This is how modern society thinks of guilt. Guilt is an old way of thinking about humanity. Modern people do not like the idea of guilt. Modern society has worked very, very hard to do away with the idea of guilt. But there is a terrible problem. Wilford McClay, who's a, he's a historian and he's a college professor, several years ago he wrote this really interesting article called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And in this article he talks about how guilt has not done what Frederick Nietzsche and so many others thought that it would. Nietzsche thought that as society became less religious and more secular, which it has, Nietzsche thought that guilt would go away. He thought that if you remove God from the equation, you remove guilt. And that makes total sense because if you remove God, then you remove sin. You remove any sort of moral absolutes. You remove any sense of objective right and wrong. If there is no God, if there is no God, you create a world where people are should be able to live however they want to live as long as they're not hurting anyone else. And therefore, guilt should supposedly go away. You know what Wilford McClay says? He says the problem is guilt has not gone away. That even as religion has retreated, even as society has become more secular, guilt is as powerfully active and present in our lives as it has ever been. Did you know that the average person experiences five hours of guilty feelings a week? Some of you are like, man, I'm really beating the average. Five hours of guilty feelings a week. Have you ever seen Brene Brown's TED Talk on shame and guilt? It's one of the most watched talks ever. He say, you know, if, we, if it was really true, if we were living in this post-sin, post-guilt society, why would people be flocking to watch this? See, guilt is not obsolete. No, guilt is obstinate. It will not leave us alone. As much as we hate it, we can't make it go away. We can't get rid of it. Now, why is that? And the answer is because as much as we want to believe that we are okay, there is a part of every single one of us that knows we are not okay. See, friends, and if you do not learn to deal with your guilt, and you don't learn how to deal with your sin, then guess what? It will deal with you. If you don't deal with it, it will deal with you. Several years ago, Dr. Tim Tyson, who teaches at Duke University, sat down with Carolyn Bryant. 
And in August of 1955, Carolyn Bryant claimed that Emmett Till, this young black boy from Chicago, whistled at her, flirted with her, and tried to grab her hand as she walked out of, convenience, out of, out of a convenience store. Carolyn Bryant, this white woman, her, her husband and her brother went to the house where Emmett Till was staying at the time. They kidnapped him. They tortured him. And they murdered him. They tied his body to a boat and they drug it through the Tallahatchie River in Florida. And it has put images on the mind of our nation that we have still not forgotten. When Dr. Tyson sat down with her just a couple years ago, she looked at him and she said, what difference does it make? They're all dead now anyway. And he said to her, what are you talking about? And she said, he never whistled at me. He never reached for my hand. It's a shame that he had to die like that. And all these years, I have been plagued because I let the world think that he did that to me. Can you imagine having to wake up every morning for 60 years with that burden weighing on you? See, sin will do terrible things to you if you do not learn to deal with it. If you do not learn to take the hardest, darkest, messiest, most shameful parts of your life to God, it will eat you alive. And the problem with modern culture, problem that so many people are facing today, is that we have this terrible sense of shame and guilt, but we have no path forward for absolution and atonement. No path forward for forgiveness. But Psalm 51 gives us one. And it is amazing. And it is called the paradox of grace, which is point two. See, there's a reason that modern people do not like the notion of guilt. And it's because we think that guilt is emotionally and psychologically harmful. It's damaging. It's not good for us to see ourselves like this. That the more we see our sin, the more self-loathing we become. And the more unworthy of love that we feel. But friends, that is not at all what happens in this passage. There is this strange paradox that the deeper David looks into the darkness of his own heart, the more confident and the more self-assured he becomes. The deeper David goes into his sin, the more loved he feels, not less. And you see, this is the uniqueness of Christian confession. Let me show you how this works. First, David gets brutally honest about the depths of his sin. And if you really want to deal with your guilt, you've got to get honest too. Now David uses, he uses three words in this, in this psalm uh, to describe sin, and each of them actually tell us something about the nature of sin. So the first word comes in verse 1. David doesn't waste any time. He gets right to it. The first word comes in verse 1. It's the word transgressions. David prays, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Now, this word transgressions means to step over a boundary. 
It's like trespassing. And see, that's actually what sin is. Sin is going where God tells you not to go. And sometimes we really struggle with this. Because we think that the reason God is telling us to not go certain places is because God is holding out on us. And God is trying to limit our joy. See, but God's laws are never there to limit our joy. They are there to give us joy. God's laws are never there to confine us. They are there to protect us and to liberate us. God knows more than we know. And I wonder if you believe that this morning. I wonder if you really believe that God is smarter and wiser than you about every area of your life. Because wherever we go, where God tells us not to go, what we're saying is, God, I actually know more than you do. See, just look at your life for just a moment. Where do you think that you are wiser than God? Where do you think that you know better than God? Where are you going where God does not want you to go? With your money, where are you going? With sex, where are you going? With, uh, with substances, where are you going? See, whenever we go where God does not want us to go, it, it may feel very good in the moment, but it always brings sorrow and regret and guilt and shame in the end. Transgressions. Here's the second word that David uses. It comes in verse 2, and it's the word iniquity. He says, wash away all my iniquity. Now, iniquity means inward corruption. And what David is saying here is he's saying, you know, sin was not just this event in my life, but it is a condition of my life. I remember when my two youngest children were four and two years old. And the two-year-old was playing with the four-year-old's toy. And the four-year-old did not like this and wanted their toy back. And so I had to step in and kind of, you know, be a dad in the moment. And I was like, all right, two-year-old, you need to give the toy back and you need to ask if you can have a turn. And she rallied. I mean, it was so tender and it was so mature. She handed the toy back and said, can I please have a turn? And I thought, is anybody getting this on camera right now? Because I'm rocking this parenting thing. This is amazing. It was so tender. I mean, through tears, can I please have a turn? And the four-year-old took the toy from her and she got in real close. I mean, leaned in real close, like nose to nose, face to face. And she whispered, you can never have a turn. Now, let me tell you something. No one taught her that. It's just in her. And it is in all of us. There, there, there is this inherent selfishness in every human heart. Every human heart has been infected by this virus. And G.K. Chesterton once said, he said, the sinfulness of humanity is the only Christian belief for which there is overwhelming empirical evidence. Iniquity, that's the second word. Here's the third word. It comes at the very end of verse 2, and David says, 
Cleanse me from my sin. Okay, it's, it's actually the word sin. But what the word here means is to miss the mark. Now, this is a little different from the word transgression. Transgression means to do something that God tells us not to do. But the word sin here means to fail to do something that God tells us to do, like caring for the poor or justice for those who are oppressed. The the word transgressions refers to what theologians call sins of commission. But the word sin refers to what theologians call sins of omission. Now, let me just, this is terribly convicting if you just think about this for just a second. Because some of us, we tend to think of ourselves as pretty good people. But when you start to deal with this whole idea of missing the mark, and of of not doing things that God has called you to do, if you just meditate on it for a second, you will not think of yourself very good for much longer. Do you know what Jesus says the golden rule is? The golden rule is to treat other people how you want to be treated. You know what that means? It means that we must meet the, uh, the needs of other people with the same intensity the same enthusiasm, the same joy as we seek to meet our own needs. It it means to be as excited about other people's success and prosperity in life or vocation or whatever it is as you are about your own. See, and if you just think about that for just a few moments, you begin to realize that you are not a good person that we do not treat other people the way that we want to be treated. We fall far short of the place of the things that God calls us to do. And see, David, here's what he's doing in these three words. He's getting brutally honest about his sin. He says, I've done things that God told me not to do. And I haven't done things that God told me to do. And at my very core, I'm corrupt and evil. See, and you hear that and you think, Shouldn't he be in a pit of self-loathing? I mean, shouldn't David feel so unlovable? Shouldn't he be in despair? And shouldn't he be crushed? But he's not. I mean, by the end of this psalm, David has a song on his lips. He is happy. He is joyful. He is confident. What is going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. It's called the paradox of grace. And the paradox of grace is this. The paradox of grace is that only as you see the depths of your guilt and sin can God show you the depths of his love and grace in your life. And this is the uniqueness of Christian confession. See, David, he gets brutally honest about who he is. But then, and some of us stop there. And friends, if you stop there, you will live in self-loathing. And you will live in shame. And you will walk around with your head held low. And you may think that what God wants is for you to constantly feel just as bad about yourself as possible. But David does not stop there. David gets brutally honest about who he is, but then he gets brutally honest about who God is. Look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Now, I love this because before David confesses anything about himself, 
he confesses something about God. That God is a God of unfailing love. It's actually one word in the Hebrew. It's the word hesed. And it means undeserved and unconditional love. Undeserved and unconditional love. The reason that it is unconditional is because it is undeserved. You do not earn it. You cannot earn it. It comes to you by sheer grace. See, people often say, I believe that God accepts us the way we are. And that is true, but that does not capture the wonder of it all. It's not just that God accepts us the way we are. It's that God accepts us despite the way we are. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. God loves us, not because we are lovable, but because he is love. See, the world says sin, guilt, you need to get rid of these concepts. They're old-fashioned, they're out of date, and they're harmful to human psychology. But the gospel says sin and guilt are the only way into the ocean of God's love. The only way. If you never see your sin and your guilt, you'll never understand God's love. It'll never melt you. It'll never transform you. It'll never move you. You might come to church and sing about it, but your heart is just dead inside. But the more you see your sin, the, 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 the deeper that you go into it, the deeper and deeper you can go into the love of God you. It is a love that comes to you, not because of what you have done, but in spite of what you have done. It is a love that will never fail you, even though you have failed him. And that is the paradox of grace. The paradox of grace. The deeper you go into your sin, the deeper you can go into God's love. Now that brings us to the last point, which is the power of forgiveness. And I want to be very practical here, because this psalm gets very practical. See, when you experience the grace of God in your life, the forgiveness of God in your life, it begins to change your life. And grace that does not change you is grace that is not in you. How does it change you? Well, we're running out of time, so I'll be very brief here. But here's what this psalm teaches us. It teaches us that the forgiveness of God creates new people who are brought together into a new community because of a new song. New people, new community, new song. It makes us into new people. See, David prays in verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God. And I love this word, create. It's the same word used in Genesis 1 when it says that God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. Out of nothing. We worship a God who is able to do something new out of nothing, and he did it in David's life, and if you were in Christ, he can do it in your life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. That means that God can take people who are broken and limping, who, like David, have made a terrible mess of their lives, and he can come into your life, and he can change you. See, you are not stuck you're not stuck. You might feel stuck, but if you were in Christ, you are not stuck. If you're anxious 
and you want peace, God can give it to you. If you are bitter and you cannot seem to let something go, God can help you. If you are battling addiction and you want deliverance, God can heal you. He can turn you into a person of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He makes new people who are then brought together into a new community. See, notice in verse 18, David goes from talking about how God's grace makes us new as individuals to how it makes us new as a community. He says, may it please you to prosper Zion and to build up the walls of Jerusalem. The image is of an entire city, an entire community that is now characterized by forgiveness. Do not just make Psalm 51 about you and God. No, 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 no. Psalm 51 has horizontal implications for your life. David says it creates a new city, a new community characterized by forgiveness. What is this community that David is talking about? It is the church, friends. We are called to be a community of forgiveness so that when our city looks at us, they see us as people who operate very differently from the world. That we are to be people who forgive radically, who forgive our neighbors, who forgive our coworkers, who forgive our enemies, and who forgive one another. It starts in this room, actually. Let me ask you a question today. Who in this room do you need to be reconciled with? Who in this room are you not at peace with? Who in this room do you need to seek forgiveness from? Or give forgiveness to. It is to be one of the marks of our life together. And you see, the question is, well, how, how do we become that kind of community? And the answer is through this last thing that we see, is that it, it's through a new song. You know, Psalm 51, like all the Psalms, is actually a song. You, you may not realize this, but the Psalms were actually sung. They're, they're prayers, but then they were sung in Old Testament worship. And what an amazing song of forgiveness Psalm 51 is. I, I, I saw a story this week on social media. You might have seen it. I think it went viral. Uh, it was a story about the Himba tribe in Namibia, which is in southern Africa. And it's a story about how every child in this tribe gets a song. And, and here, here's the background. The date of birth of a child is fixed not at the time of its arrival in the world, nor in its design, but much earlier. It is fixed since the day the child is thought of in his mother's mind. When a woman decides that she's going to have a child, she sits down and rests under a tree. She listens until she can hear the song of the child who wants to be born. And after she hears this child's song, she comes back to the man who will be the father of the child to teach him that song. And when they have intercourse to pro procreate the child, they sing the song of the child together to invite them. When the mother is pregnant, 
She teaches the song of this child to the midwives and the older women of the village. So when the child is born, old women and people around him sing his song to welcome him. As the child grows, the other villagers learn his song. So if the child falls or gets hurt, he always finds someone to pick him up and sing his song. Similarly, if the child does something wonderful or successfully passes through the rites of passage, the people of the village sing his song to honor him. Here's my favorite part. If at any time during his life, the person commits an aberrant crime or social act, the individual is called in the center of the village and the people of the community form a circle around him. And then they sing his song. The tribe recognizes that the correction of antisocial behavior does not pass through judgment, but it is by love and reminder of identity through their song. Isn't that incredible? I mean, I read that this week, and I thought that is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And I'm so sorry to tell you this morning that it's not true. It's all made up. I started Googling it. You got to Google things before you use, like, why'd you do this? to us. Here's why. Wouldn't it be amazing if that were true? Wouldn't it be incredible if you had a song like that for your life? A song that reminded you no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, you are not disqualified from the love and embrace of God. Friends, the wonder of this table, the wonder of the Christian gospel, is that it gives us a song like that. See, everything that David prays in this passage, everything that he asks God for, God spares him of, and instead he did it to another king. David asks for mercy, and God gives it to him, because on the cross, Jesus received no mercy. David asked God to not take away his presence from him, and God didn't, because on the cross, he withdrew his presence from his only son. David asked God to cleanse him. And God does, because on the cross, Jesus, who was the sinless one, took on the sins of the world. David asked God to let him hear joy and gladness, and God gives it to him because on the cross, Jesus heard silence. You know why God invites us to this table every week? It is so that we can hear the song of the gospel over our lives. It is a song of grace for guilty people. It is a song that says no matter who you are, no matter what your story is, no matter how dark it gets, God's love and grace and forgiveness is available to you. And it can come into your life and it can change you. And if you've never heard that song, friends, you can hear it today. God invites you to hear it today. God has brought you here because he wants you to hear it today.
On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we, we give you thanks and praise for the grace and the love and the mercy that awaits us at this table, that this table is not for people who think that they have it all together, but it is for those who know that they don't. God, if we know ourselves at all, we come to this table today crawling, crawling because of our own stories. And yet, God, we thank you that in this table we find a God who comes running to us, ready to receive us, ready to welcome us, all because of what Christ has done for us. Help us to believe this today as we eat and drink together. In Christ's name, amen.